The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am uh, glad that you are here worshiping with us today. For those uh, visiting us, uh, just checking us out, we are glad that you're here. We don't want anything from you. We don't uh, make you fill out a card or stand up or raise your hand or draw attention to yourself in anything. Anyway, uh, we want you to have space and just to kind of check us out, but more importantly, to check out Jesus. Uh, We hope that's why you're here this morning. Um, That's why we exist. We exist to tell others about Jesus. And our main goal isn't um, to be cool or to be relevant or whatever the cultural buzzword is uh, right now. Our fun My kids tell me how boring I am often. Uh, Our main goal is to be a community of people who represent Jesus as accurately as possible. Uh, That's our goal this morning. So we're we're, uh, glad that you're here with us. We hope uh, that you hear a lot about Jesus kind of every week, but um, this week too. And uh, it's, I don't think we can ever have enough good news, right? We can never have enough good news. So let me pray, and we're going to jump into it this morning. Father, um, I thank you for this time, these past several months of going verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the book of Revelation. I thank you for the ways that you've changed our church and shaped us, the way you've kind of corrected some of our um, understandings of the book and our understanding of life and spiritual life and the future. This has all been... uh, formative for us, and we thank you. It's been a fruitful time. Father, um, as we come to the close of the book, I pray that you would help me preach it accurately, that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, that it would be uh, all of you and none of me this morning. And I pray again that you would um, speak to your people, speak to us deep in our soul this morning as we take a few moments to be still and know that you're God and listen to your word. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hopefully it's no surprise for you that I've got a little bit of good news to share with you from the book of Revelation this morning. Um, Just an FYI, next week is the last week in our study on the book of Revelation, so you don't want to miss that. Have you guys enjoyed our time so far in the Bible, in this book of Revelation? Cool. Next week I bust out all the charts and all the illustrations. Just joking. That's not happening. Uh, we're having special guest Kurt Cameron here next week to walk us through. Ooh, just joking. Uh, well, I know I've heard from many of you that it's been fruitful. I'm glad. I know last I got a lot of uh, 
messages about last week and um, how you enjoyed the sermon and kind of reshaped your imagination uh, for the end times or for the new heavens, the new earth. And I wanted to let you know that, that I enjoyed it as well. Uh, that chapter, chapter 21, is one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. And I don't think we can ever talk too much about heaven. Um, or if I can be a little more specific, about the new heavens and the new earth that Jesus is making. And that's the reason why I decided to split up chapter 2 into two sermons, or chapter 22, I'm sorry, into two sermons. Uh, I wanted to spend a second week talking about the new heavens and the new earth. And so that's the first five verses of chapter 22. That's where we're going to be out this morning. If you want to open up your Bibles or your app and you can follow along with us. And if you weren't here last week and you didn't hear the sermon, I suggest you go to the website or podcast or wherever and give it a listen um, because this is basically part two of the sermon from last week. And, but just because I know some of us weren't here, I'm going to try to catch us up really quick. Um, this is what we learned from Revelation chapter 21. Surprising things. One, the new heavens and the new earth are what we're waiting for, wait, waiting for Jesus to restore and make all things new, the end of all history. It's actually going to be more of a remodel than a new construction. So God isn't going to just obliterate everything that we know and then just create everything new, ex nihilo, out of nothing, brand new stuff. No, it's more like the illustration that we used last week was a caterpillar that died, well, whatever it does, it becomes caterpillar soup, right? And then becomes a butterfly. It uses its own um, resources. So the stuff of the old creation becomes the stuff of the new creation. The same thing is going to happen here. Jesus is saying, behold, I'm making all things new. He's going to restore all of the cosmos to something new and better. Uh, But it's more like a remodel. Secondly, the new heavens and the new earth is a city, and I said last week, not a celestial siesta. And what I meant by that is Hallmark gets it all wrong, okay? We're not floating on clouds. It's not just spiritual. That the new heavens and the new earth primarily is a city, all right, that comes, and then the third one, comes down out of heaven and doesn't beam us up into heaven. So what we see at the end of time in the book of Revelation chapter 21 is the new Jerusalem, the new city, the new heavens and new earth comes down out of heaven and it does something physical. Now what that means is all of the things you love about this earth are going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what it means. It means you're going to have a physical body. There's going to be a physical existence. There's going to be good food. I know you like good food. There's going to be good coffee. There's going to be good drinks. There's going to be good culture, the best of art, the best of architecture, the best of music, the best of poetry, the best of fiction, the best of athletics, whatever it is, it's going to be in the new heavens and new earth, right? It's outstanding. And then fourth, it was the new heavens and new earth is defined primarily by presence, before it is by absence. Now, usually when you talk to people about the new heavens and new earth, the thing they always talk about is the absence of sin, right? The absence of pain, the absence of death, the absence of tears. All the bad stuff's going to be removed. Okay, well, that's good. But before it's defined by that, it's defined by the presence of God. God himself will be in the midst of her, it says, right? God, that's what makes heaven, heaven, 
right? And not just a vacation. God's presence will be there and our soul will be satisfied. And then lastly, we saw that you don't get into the new heavens and the new earth. You don't get in through, through those pearly gates by being the good person. You get in by coming to Jesus like a thirsty person comes to a drinking fountain. So you come to the end of yourself and say, I, I'm not good enough. I don't have the moral resources, the spiritual resources necessary to get into your kingdom. I come thirsty and Jesus quenches our soul thirst through his death and resurrection, invites us in. So that was last week. Took me 45 minutes last week to do what I just did in three. But this week we're gonna learn something new. In fact, what we learned today kind of modifies a little bit what we learned last week. I joked uh, that some of us are country folk, right? And we might not like the idea of the new heavens and the new earth being so city-centered, right? I won't go too much into that. In fact, I didn't mention this last week, but the city is actually about 1,500 miles cubed in all directions, that means the city stretches from the quad cities, let's just use this, from the quad cities to Los Angeles in all directions, including up. It's going to be the greatest city ever constructed. But today we learn that this city is actually more like a garden city. It's not all concrete and skyscrapers. There's the beautiful and life-giving water of life flowing down Main Street. There's luscious trees bearing all kinds of fruit whose leaves literally heal the world. So it would be more accurate to call this city the Garden City. And if you're familiar with the story of God that's told in the Bible, now many of us in this society, in our culture, we know this as a collection of stories. And we know a lot of like little tidbits of here and there. And oh, there was this guy named David who did some cool stuff. And there was this Daniel in the lion's den thing. And then there was this, this Jesus. And, but we don't understand that this is primarily not a collection of stories, but one story. From Genesis to Revelation, telling one story. And many of us don't understand what we call the story of God. But if you do, if you are familiar with the story at all, when you read these five verses from chapter 22, you notice all kinds of things that have Old Testament significance. In fact, this verse is so, these verses are so full of Old Testament allusions that it's like they're pregnant with quadruplets. For many of us who don't know the story of God, I'm going to tell you the story of another garden to help us understand it a little bit better. The Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, Scripture tells us, was the first home of the first humans. God himself crafted Eden to be this place where mankind and God could dwell together in harmony. If you go to the first two chapters of Genesis in your Bible, you see that there was this beautiful river flowing from the garden. Psalm 46.4 says it like this. We've already quoted it today. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation 
of the Most High. You see a lot of things together there. You see God is dwelling there. You see a river flowing out of it. You see this river making glad those who get to enjoy it. When you go back to the Garden of Eden, you also see that the garden was full of fruitful trees. And there were two very special trees. The tree of life, whose fruit literally would give eternal life. And then the tree of death, or also known as the tree of knowledge of good and evil, whose fruit would eventually bring death. God told Adam and Eve that they could eat from any of the trees in the garden except the tree of death. If they ate from it, they would surely die. Now, can we just pause for a second and say how nice it would be to only have one rule to follow? See, God's garden had a million yeses and one no. He's a really good father. And it was here in the garden where Adam and Eve would walk and talk to God face to face. They weren't like us, always kind of guessing the look on God's face when he looks at us. Is he pleased with me? Is he upset with me? Is he mad at me? Is he disappointed with me? What is my relationship with God? How, are me and God cool? Are we intimate? What, what? like there's, oh, there's always this kind of blanket of suspicion and these question marks surrounding us and God. Can you imagine if you could just look him in the face and just, just tell, right? Oh, he's, he's happy with me. They had his face. They got to walk every day with him and look in his face. They knew, not just like intellectually, but knew in their body that God loved them. He cherished them like a good father does. So it's in the garden that Adam and Eve also knew each other in a way that was both transparent and virtuous. The Bible says it succinctly, they were naked and not afraid. That isn't just physical nakedness, that's relational transparency and intimacy at the soul level. They knew each other and were known by each other and loved each other and they had nothing to hide, no secrets, no skeletons in the closet. You see me, I see you, and I love you to your core. They had the ultimate experience here of human solidarity. They both knew what it meant to be made in the image of God. They both knew who they were, knew who the other was, and they loved each other and leaned into that relationship perfectly. This is the essence of what it means to be a human, to be made in the image of a relational God and relating to other humans and being connecting on a level that we're not hiding behind fear or shame or suspicion. They had it all. But then in the scene that has plagued us ever since, Adam and Eve, as our first parents, that the confession said this morning, chose to do the one thing that should never have been done. They disobeyed God. They disobeyed. They saw the one no, right? <laughs> right? You can lay it all out on the counter for your kids, right? But the one no, you put one jar of no, it could be empty. It could be empty. What do you want? What's in the jar? Right? 
They saw the one no, and they thought he's holding out on us. He's holding out something good. Why would God, you know, they get all suspicious, suspicious about the father. And they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They ate of the tree of death because scripture tells us it looked so good. It was pleasing to the eye. Because of that, everything God said would happen to them actually happened. They were cursed. In fact, all of creation was cursed in that moment as death destruction and decay began to infect everything. The curse was far more than just death. And the st- one of the starkest displays of what happened, and it was something, it was a death that infected their soul. What happened was immediately we see two things. Immediately they realize they're naked and they start trying to clothe themselves and cover themselves from each other. Shame has now affected their heart and affected their soul in a way that now there's distrust between husband and wife. I don't know if I can trust you with the intimate parts of my soul. Well, I don't know if I can trust you with the intimate parts of our soul. Well, let's hide it then. Let's keep it to ourselves. Let's be individuals now and not just to become one. And at the same time, they lose this connection with Almighty God in a Hilarious story. God comes and says, all right, it's time to walk. It's our, it's our afternoon walk time. And instead of finding Adam and Eve hopeful and excited and, and can't wait to look on God's face again, now they're hiding in the bushes, hiding from God. They feel a separation. They know they've been disobedient. They know they've broken his command. They know they've broken relationship. And so now they're full of shame, fear, doubt, and insecurity, hiding from each other and God. And we've been hiding ever since. Hiding through our phones, hiding through our careers, hiding through our kids, hiding through our hobbies, anything we can to keep God's gaze off of us and our mind off of him and our mind off this gap that's between us and him. The the sickness of our soul, we just want to stay busy so we don't think about it. Then God tells them that they have to leave the garden. He tells them, this is, most people don't understand this. This is pretty fascinating. If you read the book of Genesis, God tells them they have to leave the garden, quote, lest they reach out their hands and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. See, when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of death, they invoked a curse upon themselves. They invited brokenness into themselves. And if in that cursed state, they would also eat from the tree of life, they would kind of live forever in that state of living death, in that state of brokenness. So God, Scripture says, quote, drove out the man drove them out, and at the east of the garden, he placed an angel and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. This is crazy, right? Out of heaven, out of Eden, and some kind of celestial uh, guard to keep watch that they can never get back in and eat the tree of life because if in this cursed state they ate of tree of life, they would kind of perpetually be the living dead. To quote C.S. Lewis, from this point on, 
human history became the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God that will make him happy. Blocked from the garden, blocked from God, blocked from the tree of life, and now we're searching, trying to satisfy our soul and a million different things. But Adam and Eve were not without hope. Even in the midst of their failure and rebellion, God had gospel. Gospel means good news. He said, one day I will make all things new. I will let you back into a new garden. The prophet Ezekiel, 600 years before the birth of Jesus, said this in Ezekiel 47, 12. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. And when we read Revelation 22, 1 through 5, that's exactly what we see happen, right? With a little bit of surprise, we learn that the new Garden of Eden is actually a garden city. Do you see how much continuity there is between the new garden and the old garden. Let's look at our verses here. Chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Bright as crystal. Look, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. Yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. Verse four. They will see his face. If you, if you, if you read through the Old Testament, it's a fascinating study. If you just study the face of God, in the garden they had it, in the garden, they lost it. The whole Old Testament, they're searching for it. It says no one can look on the face of God and live. They can never get it. They can never talk to God like that. Here in the new heavens and new earth, they get it back. We get it back. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. That means he tells us who we are in a sense. And night will be no more. New heavens, new earth, no need of the sun, new cosmos, new laws of physics. It doesn't tell us what the heat's going to be. They'll need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign with him forever and ever. So here in this garden city, do we see the continuity between the Garden of Eden and the new city, right? We've got the river of life. We've got the trees of life. We've got leaves that heal humanity. We've got no more curse. We've got even the face of God is regained. The Garden City is the Garden of Eden 2.0. Now here's what we should ask ourselves. How does this happen? How does this happen? Well, for those of you 
so nobody, nobody shot, shouted out at me this, this week, but for those of you who've been in Sunday school all your life, you know the answer is always Jesus, right? But how is Jesus the answer? How did Jesus fix the world and secure for his people the garden city of God? And just so we know that in Genesis it was good, in Genesis it went bad, it's been bad ever since, in a sense, sense. and it's going to be good in the future, and we're living in this in-between time where now we get to look back where it used to be good, and we look forward where it's going to be good, and we got to ask ourselves, how how do we get from where we are to where we're going? Well, if you're an astute reader, you might have already noticed something about the Garden City of God. The surprise isn't actually in its continuity with the Garden of Eden, but it's discontinuity. Do you see what wasn't there? Let me read verse 2 slowly. Through the middle of the street of the city, that's the the river, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. On either side of the river, the tree of life with its fruit. Or should we say the trees of life? It seems... There once again, there are two important trees in the garden. But this time, they're both the tree of life. You see what's missing? This should cause us to ask, what happened to the cursed tree from the Garden of Eden? What happened to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that that brought about all this curse on humanity? Where did that tree go? In the garden, there was that one tree. Remember, a a million yeses, one no. Well, where did the tree of no? Where did the tree of curse? Where did it go? Now, we're reading the last chapter of the book of the Bible. If we pick up something here, we should go back and find it, right? We should go back and find where we... You know, what, what, what did this mean? Like, you read Harry Potter. One of the brilliant part, the story of Harry Potter is in the end, right? All of these streams that have been, they seem like they were all divergent through the book. They're all coming together at the end. Oh. Uh, oh. Right? If you didn't know, can I spoil it for you? It's a little old. I can spoil it, right? Here's the deal. Harry has to die to save the world. Oh, the boy who was cursed has to die to save everybody else. That sounds kind of familiar a little bit. But when you, if you just jump to the back of the book, if you just read the book, you're not going to understand how all these streams are coming together. Well, it's same, same true here. When we're reading this last book of the Bible, we've got to see what we should, it should pique our interest. Wait, 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 wait. There's tre- trees of life on both sides of the garden. Too, too important. What happened to the what happened to the cursed tree? See, it seems that something has happened between the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation. 
something important. What happened to this cursed tree in the Garden of Eden? Well, the Apostle Paul says it like this in Galatians chapter 3, 13. Christ, Jesus, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, the promise, might come to the Gentiles, those who are not Jews, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul here is speaking of Jesus being crucified on a cross, and he's saying the cross is the tree that was cursed, and anyone who's hanged on a, cur- on a cross or on a tree is cursed by God. What's going on? What happened between Genesis and Revelation is this. We can have the tree of life because Jesus was lifted up on the tree of death. If you notice in verse 1, the healing waters of the river of life flow straight from the throne of God and the Lamb. The Lamb, the one who was sacrificed for us. What is that? Now, what does that mean for us? It means all your healing flows from the work of Jesus. And the gospel is not just this little surface level topical ointment. It's a river that flows from the throne that you're meant to go head over heels into, that you're meant to immerse yourself into. And as you do, he heals your wounds. He heals your soul wounds. What is sick in your life? What is dead in your life? What is cursed in your life? The gospel heals. There's healing for you in the gospel of Jesus. Now what we see in the, right away in the garden when things went bad, there, Adam and Eve and our, our identities became confused. They, 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 be, they were bent. They were fractured. But through Jesus becoming a curse for us, we can receive from him new identities that are secure, immovable, built on the foundation of his one-way love, not on our own efforts, not on our own performance. See, that's what it means when we read here that their na- Jesus is going to write their names on his, our foreheads. What, what does that mean? That means you're going to have an unshakable sense of who you are given to you from outside of yourself. See, every one of us, we're going to school to earn an identity, right? What's pulling you along to get your degree is the, the identity so, that's at the end of the tunnel. I will be a lawyer. I will be a doctor. I will be a business owner. I will be successful. And this little wannabe identity is pulling you along all through your life where you're just trying to earn this identity to tell the world who you are. We read this, we go, how silly. They're gonna write our names on our forehead. That's what we wanna do ourselves. 
That's why we have business cards. That's why we have titles on our door. That's why we put huge things on our cars. This is who I am. And all of those things can be taken from us in a moment. And all of those things take vigilance, constant effort, soul strategy, soul effort to maintain them. Because we don't want just to be a lawyer. We want to be the best lawyer or a successful lawyer or added it. I want to be a parent. We don't want to just be any parent. We want to be a good parent. And that takes effort and work. And our work is always in jeopardy because something can go bad. One child that goes off the rails ruins our identity. Now we are bad parents. And what I thought was going to give me hope and a sense of identity now is lost and I feel crushed. This is one of the reasons suicide rates are increasing exponentially across our country. Our world is telling us, go out there and build an identity. And you build it only one way, your constant vigilance. You can't sleep on it, right? Everybody knows the market is always in flux. We're always looking for new, better, greater things. And so you got to constantly be after it and constantly be working. And that is exhausting. And in the garden, the new garden city of God, God comes down and says, no, 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 no. Enough with all that. I've worked for this identity. I've earned this for you. Through my son living a perfect life and dying a substitutionary death, he took the curse of the bad identity. He took the curse of the failure. He took the curse of the loser. He took the, the curse of the cursed. Everyone looked at the cross and said, no one can be blessed by God if they die that way. Everything that you're doing in your life to avoid the curse of being a bad employer, a bad boss, a bad this, a bad that, Jesus took it all on the cross. He took it all. He absorbed it all. And he, he said, it says, and he didn't even regard the shame of it. He didn't even care about the, yes, bring on the shame. I'll take the shame. He despised the shame. And he did that for us. Why? So he could write his name, the Father's name on our foreheads. You are loved and forgiven. I remember when someone was trying to beat this into my head because I'm, I'm a go-getter. I like to earn it. I like to get after it. And I remember this, this, these people trying to speak the gospel to me and tell me that, that, that God loved me outside of all my work and outside of all my effort, in spite of all my work, in spite of all my effort, and I couldn't get it. And I kind of visualized myself going up to Jesus. And in a sense, when I saw Jesus on the cross, I was internally ashamed of him. Because I was like, you know, this is Jesus as he comes back in a sense, right? But most of the pictures we have of Jesus aren't really accurate of what he looked like on the cross when he was naked the world in weakness, beaten. And when I saw Jesus in that sense of weakness, I was internally ashamed. That's who I'm serving? And then I felt ashamed. Yeah, it is who I'm serving. He did that for me. And the guy that was talking with me said, Justin, Jesus is right there in your mind. Not, it wasn't a vision or anything. What would you ask him? If, 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 he, if he was right there with him, what would you ask him? I said, who am I? 
I think it's a foundational question. I've been living all my life like I'm out there making it, I'm out there earning it, I'm out there trying to create myself. And I just, who, who am I? If I'm not this go-getter guy, who am I? And he said, you are my loved and forgiven son. And because I'm hard-headed, I was like, duh, I knew that. I've preached that for 10 years. And God, because I do think it was the spirit of God speaking to me, said, no, when you're that, nothing else matters. And in the moment, it went from here to here. See, you might be going, oh, yeah, yeah, I know I'm forgiven. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know Jesus loves me. I know Jesus died on my cross. And yet you're living your life anxious, full of fear, in constant worry, out there trying to earn your identity just like the rest of the world. Well, here's the reality. Then you don't really believe that you are loved and forgiven by God. You don't really believe it. Because when you really believe it, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. The identity Christ gives me is the foundational reality of my life. And I can live with disappointing the world. I can live for the applause of another and not my peers or my spouse or my family or my parents. But the gospel, surprisingly, so let me say, that's offered to you in the gospel through the death of Jesus Christ. God, the Father, you get the face of God again and you know he's smiling at you because Jesus earned God's smile for you. God offers you that personally. You can have that in your soul right now. It'll be a reality in the new heavens and new earth, but you can have the foretaste of it, the down payment on it now if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. But the gospel does more than just heal you individually. Again, the picture here is a garden city. Not a personal, private retreat for you. A, 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 couple, a, member, a couple members over in Moline, Sacred City Moline, they live out in Alito, and because they're awesome, they created this little tiny cabin out on their farm, and they offer it to the staff, and anybody really wants to go use it. It's this little tiny cabin, it's totally hipster. You got this little fireplace in there. It's just awesome. And I think so many of us think of heaven like that. Like it's this little tiny retreat that I get away from all people. But that's not the picture God gives us. God gives us the picture of a city. And a city is full of people. And that is God's glorious goal in the gospel, to unite us together, here it is, as a sacred city a holy city where once again we can dwell with God and we can dwell with each other in peaceful and joyful solidarity. That's where we're headed. And that's one of the things so many Christians miss in today's culture. Listen, Jesus, and I know I'm gonna have to reprogram some stuff that you learned in Sunday school. Jesus didn't save you just so you could have a personal relationship with him. In fact, that might be one of the most spiritually deadly and spiritually dangerous false gospels that masquerades as true Christianity. It's Christianity 
ungodly wedded to American individualism. It's a hybrid of biblical Christianity and American individualism. It says this, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. I don't need the church to practice my spirituality. I don't need to be a member of a church. I don't need to be in a missional community. I don't need to submit to any other leadership than myself. And yet Jesus said, the world will know us by our love for one another. We are called in Ephesians to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, our community life here at Sacred City is meant to be an apologetic to a watching world. Apologetic means a defense of the Christian faith or people are meant to look in at the way we do life with one another, our commitment towards one another and go, oh, that's what God is like. People should look in at sacred city and say, what sacrifice, what love, what devotion, what missional zeal. These people actually live like that in today's day and age. They care for one another. They cook for one another. They clean for one another. They pray for one another. They are open and hospitable and welcoming to even those outside of the community. They stand up and use their influence for the marginalized in the city. They don't crave power, but instead embrace obscurity. Why? How? The only answer is meant to be the gospel. God has given us a new identity in Christ. We are no longer slave or free, male or female, Greek or Jew. It doesn't matter our race. It doesn't matter our socioeconomic background. God has made us one and we're trying to dwell together in unity centered on the gospel. That's the only reason we come together as often as we do. It's the only reason we love each other like we do because Christ loved us that way. Listen, but in order for that to happen, in order for the world, our culture, to ever look in and go, oh, okay, that's different. Listen, in order for that to happen, we have to be committed to living in close, covenanted community with one another. How else will they know to whom we belong? How else will they know? How else can they look in and see that we're... A different type of family living a different type of way. If we're all just a bunch of individuals who aren't committed to one another and we're just going our own way, doing our own thing, but then occasionally on Sunday we come together and sing some songs together, the songs that we sing are not going to get the world's attention. It's the lives that we live. It's our life in the community, our life in the city, our life serving the poor. That is the gospel message we're taking out into the world.
Ephesians 2.18 says it like this. For through Jesus, we have access in one spirit to the Father. Praise God. Listen, through Jesus, we have access to the Father. Keep reading. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. It means outsiders, foreigners, immigrants. Listen, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Citizens. Listen, I love Chicago. I lo what I mean by that is I like to drive to Chicago, eat their food, and then come home to the Quad Cities. That's what I like. I'm not a citizen of Chicago, right? Nor do I want to be a citizen of Chicago. Listen, the church, you're meant to be a citizen here. Sit in that analogy. Sit in that metaphor. It means this is your zip code. You live here. You're a part of this community. You don't just pop in and experience a worship service now and then and get kind of puffed up a little bit and then you, you leave. No, no, no. You're meant to live here. You're meant to be one of us. You're meant to be a sacred city. And then. We are a sacred city, and that does not mean we are somehow super holy people, obviously. It means we've been set apart by God because of his grace, not because of anything we've, good we've done or could do, and we fail. That's why we read the confession every week. We fail to live this out every week, but our standard stays the same. We are a sacred city, a city within the Quad Cities, Listen, here it is. That lives as citizens of a coming garden city of God. What we want to live like, listen, I have no interest in just doing a religious thing on Sunday morning. Right? I want to live out this reality. This is where God's taking us to this new city on a new heavens and new earth where we get to walk with God and we get to walk with each other in human solidarity once again. And this is what God's calling us to do. Live today like it's true. Live today for the coming city. Work at renewing our city for the glory of God because Jesus is making all things new. Care about your neighbor right now because Jesus is making all things new. Share your faith with your coworker because Jesus is making all things new. All healing flows from his throne and everything that touches it will be healed one day. Live like it now. Live like it now. Live like it now. Let me pray. Father, this heavenly vision that you've given the apostle and you've shared to us and for us through the book of Revelation speaks to a deep place in my soul. And I long for the day when you will make all things new and I pray for the heavenly energy now to work for it. Knowing that our human endeavors can never make it happen. It's waiting for your ultimate consummation. You're the one who's gonna come and fill it and fix everything and make everything new. But you, 
You invite us into that story to be agents of reconciliation, to commit to one another and try to walk out this walk of faith together, to love one another, serve one another, care for one another, and invite others into it. And so I pray that you would make us a good picture of the coming kingdom. That we would see evidence of your grace among us. People coming to faith, people serving, people caring, people loving, people tearing down walls of hostility and sowing seeds of peace. I pray that you would create it in us and among us for your glory and our good. For any person, Father, here who needs that new identity, I pray that they would pray to you now and ask you to write that name on their forehead. Give them that secure identity that can never be taken or stolen or lost. And that you'd bring healing to souls even now through your gospel. And we get to step into a picture of that where your word kind of your word became flesh in Jesus and your word becomes part of the new creation in this, uh, the Lord's Supper, that we get to see the gospel in a physical way. We get to be reminded that we get the tree of life in the new heavens and the new earth because Jesus hung on the tree of death and his body was broken and his blood was shed so that we could have the tree of life so that we could have healing, so that we could have your face again, so that we could have the new heavens and the new earth. And so I, I pray for Christians this morning that are gonna come and take the bread that is your body and the wine that is your blood. They would eat it in faith, worshiping you for the way you're making all things new. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.